Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, February 13th, 2017, the Article 50 Passing President Trump Calling Edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. I'm joined as usual uh, by my regular co-host Scott Lucas, Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing quite well, despite everything. You mean... That we're about to discuss. Yeah. Crisis, you know, is this going to be a very special episode of, uh, the, uh, of the podcast? You know, chaos in the U.S., Brexit in Britain, general uncertainty and fear. You know, standard days uh, developments, really. All, all part of the all part of the standard working day around here. Mm. And we are also joined once again after such a long interlude. But it is good to have you back by Kristala Yakinthu, a Birmingham research fellow and semi-professional standard house mover uh, by this point. It's I true. assume it is your true. skills in both uh, uh, contract exchange and furniture removals must be advanced. I'm looking to add to my uh, areas of expertise. So if everyone, if anyone needs someone to help them move their houses, move their houses, move house. Yeah, um, moving their houses seems like a whole other skill set. I could do that set. too. I could do that too. I'm not this even probably sure if that can be done unless this, they're prefabricated. This is probably a reflection of how my house move has gone mm-hmm. um, as to whether or not I can craft a full sentence. You were like two walls in and someone went, no, no, Cristela. <laughs> no, not, no, the stuff inside yeah, the house, not the house. <laughs> yeah. Stay still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, went well. New house. Can't construct a sentence, otherwise okay. Okay, welcome back. You've Thank been, you. You've been much missed. Like to keep everyone guessing about when I'm here and when I'm not. Mm-hmm. On our toes. Mm-hmm. Our first, uh, oh, our two topics for today. First, the UK Parliament votes to trigger Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty, beginning the country's formal walk towards the door of the European Union. With Tory Remainers falling in line and Labour in utter disarray, how did hard Brexiteers come to so thoroughly command the terrain of British politics? Second, Donald Trump plunges into international diplomacy with a series of phone calls to fellow leaders that it would be fair to describe as unorthodox in style. How will other countries handle a president, well, a president like this? On February 1st, after two days of debate, the House of Commons in the United Kingdom voted by an overwhelming 498 to 114 to endorse triggering Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty, beginning the process of the UK's formal exit from the European Union. It now needs to clear the House of Lords, after which will follow negotiations between the government and the EU on the terms of the deal. Based on this vote, if it should go through both houses, Parliament will have a take-it-or-leave-it vote on the final result of those negotiations, but it won't be able to get into any more detail than that when the time comes. The majority Conservative Party, most of whose MPs had opposed Brexit before the June referendum, fell almost entirely in line with Prime Minister Theresa May's instruction to vote for. The opposition Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn, meanwhile, gave his MPs a three-line whip to vote for Article 50, which was then defied by more than 40 of them, including 13 members of the leadership team who have all been told off but allowed to remain in post. So, what does this portend for Britain's negotiations and ultimate exit, and does it mark another landmark on the downward spiral into oblivion of Labour as an opposition and a conceivable alternative government? Well, we are all... uh, full of opinions about this, but we thought it would be helpful to have someone whose opinions are leavened by more expertise in the room to help us with this one. Uh, this is Tim Horton, who is a reader in uh, European politics. Oh, well, hello, Tim. 
Hello. Thanks very much for, for, for being with us. Um, that was dispiriting stuff uh, that I just narrated, at least it seems so. Maybe we can kick off by having you just tell us exactly in the grand scheme of, uh, you know, referendum to UK's exit, um, what this means, what stage this puts us at, what happens from now. It's worth stating that in a, in a very formal sense, still nothing has happened because until Article 50 itself is, 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 is um, enacted formally, no process has begun. But this clearly is an important step towards Article 50 actually being triggered. Um, it's now passed the House of Commons. It still has to go through the House of Lords. I would expect there to be quite a bit of resistance in the House of Lords. I would expect that one or two issues will be raised, particularly I would have thought the rights of EU citizens in the UK um, will be one of the issues that will be raised. This may mean that um, proposed amendments and the like are approved in the Lords, will be bounced back to the Commons. Nonetheless, I think we can say with a great deal of certainty, as much certainty as there is in in life that it will get through Parliament and that Theresa May will then have parliamentary approval for the triggering of Article 50. What will happen then is it's expected in March, in the second half of March, that she will do this formally, probably have to be in the, in the, in the form of a letter or something like that, that she will send to Donald Tusk, the, the um, President of the European Council. And this will then be sort of formally received and uh, acknowledged and then the actual two-year period which is stipulated in Article right, 50. Like, like a five-alarm klaxon goes off yeah. somewhere in yeah. Brussels. And still... T-minus mean, <laughs> whatever time starts to be narrated Dr. No style over the... Indeed, over the indeed, speakers. because Article 50, as, as short as it is, uh, makes it clear that it's a two-year period. It can be extended, but it's essentially, a, it's essentially that two-year period. So, in a sense, we've been involved in a, in a long and elaborate and complicated dance uh, up until... Uh, the actual former formal triggering. I mean, it's worth remembering. I know we're going to talk about the Labour Party and others, but it's worth remembering that on the early, in the early morning of the 24th of June, Jeremy Cor Corbyn was actually calling for the immediate triggering of Article 50. Mm -hmm. uh, those of us who remember the, the TV coverage then. So, one of the more striking factors is how long it has actually taken for us to get from that referendum back in June last year mm -hmm. through to the triggering in um, March. Yeah, and there was, because uh, there was some debate about whether Parliament was required to say anything about this at all, right? The, the, the working theory of the government, uh, at least its public-facing wing for a while, was that the referendum simply gave the executive the right to say, okay, everyone's in favour of this, we're doing this, and Parliament can, can watch which was challenged in court and then that yep. brought us to this place. So we seem to have the rather odd spectacle of a big fight was had through the courts to oblige the executive to come to Parliament to ask for approval of this, and then as soon as it arrived, Parliament just stonkingly voted it, voted it through with both major parties in favour. Yes, I mean, if I'd have been advising Theresa May, I would have put a bill down soon after the referendum and got it approved uh, in that way without having to go through the process of um, being challenged in the courts and, uh, and losing. Uh, and therefore being forced to do this. It was always likely that once the referendum had um, articulated um, uh, a view that we will be leaving, that Parliament wouldn't, st wouldn't stand in its way, may jump up and down and scream and shout, but wasn't actually going to block it. 
that's politically very difficult. Um, so I think Theresa May made a, um, a mistake by not passing what was, if you look at the bill, you, you know, it's a very short, a very short bill, easy, easy to pass, really. So bad tactics on the part of Theresa May, I think. Because I guess one of the, I mean, one of the reasons why this might seem intuitively, superficially strange to people is because the vote publicly to leave the European Union was by whatever, 52 to 48 percent. The vote in Parliament was most certainly not by 48 to 52 percent. People might wonder, therefore, well, why is Parliament so unrepresentatively in favour of this thing uh, when it's actually so narrow a divide in the, in the, in the public um, at large? The reason for that is that it ended up not really being an argument about the wisdom or otherwise of leaving the European Union that got parked. The question was whether or not the will of the people, so-called, needed to be implemented or, or overturned, um, or at least implemented in some much more conditional way. So this vote was achieved by basically turning it into, you know, a, a do you dare oppose both the Prime Minister and the British people kind of scenario. I think less, I mean, yes, it, it's about, I mean, it's worth bearing in mind, particularly for our more international listeners, that referenda are quite rare in the UK. Um, certainly, okay, over the last few years we've had a few, but historically it's not that common. The idea that you might overturn a vote where 17 million people voted one way to disregard that, I think would be politically quite difficult. But secondly, and this is where the complexity of um, the nature of the vote and where people voted to leave uh, and voted to remain becomes significant because a lot of Labour um, MPs were caught in a difficult position that they themselves might have advocated that Britain should remain but the majority of the voters in their constituencies voted to leave so as a good Democrat do you, it kind of goes back to Burkean mm-hmm. questions about what the role of an MP should be but you know, do you go against the majority view in your constituency if you mm. are there to represent your constituency? So that seemed to be quite an important factor at play here, uh, irrespective of the position of, of, of Jeremy Corbyn. Hmm. And like, at least, like, if, if it's the other way around, if all of your constituents are in favour of remaining. Uh, but you've been told that you should vote for Article 50, then you at least have the cover of being able to say, well, look, I don't like this any more than you do, but the referendum result is what it is, so I've got to go along with it. Whereas if you're going to go the other way, your constituents are like in favour of leaving and you're going to vote to remain, it's like a double whammy. You're both telling your constituents that you don't share their view and you're saying the referendum result doesn't matter. So you have no, you have no cover. Oh, and also probably... If it's Labour or Conservative, your party leader is telling you that you should do this as well. So you're really out on the limb. Absolutely. I mean, I think I w- what I would also add to this, uh, a sort of broader point, which I think is significant, is don't underestimate how much of a shock to the political system this referendum result was. And in some senses, an awful lot of politicians, dare I say it, also political scientists, journalists, commentators, are still, to some extent, in shock with the result. It goes against... Uh, what many of us were, were expecting, or many commentators were expecting. Check that like, podcast back catalogue. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you I can, did. You can find, uh, I, I, find those opinions on the record. Yeah, I we cer- were not expecting it. Uh, I certainly thought that it was quite possible um, that the, the vote would be to leave, just as I thought it was quite possible that Trump might win. But in some senses, people didn't want to hear that story. Mm-hmm. Um, so don't underestimate that first really important that, that point about shock to the system. Mm. I got a couple questions. 
<laughs> See, the first starting point is, is that was the referendum a declaration of an intention to leave, or was it a definitive binding referendum? Because it seems to me that this is muddled. If it was very clear that the UK is going to leave the EU, then the question becomes the terms on which it leaves. But precisely because the government was so vague about those terms until just before this vote took out. For example, would we leave the single market? For example, what the relationship between the economic conditions would be versus the right or the denial of the right to entry. In other words, the immigration question. It seems to me that what came down in this vote was it became an all or nothing, which is you either have to support this process no matter what it leads to, even mm -hmm. if it's going to be, as I believe, economic disaster, or you stand firm against it. So that cuts out the middle ground, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, we've got, we've got to say, like, like two, two things, I guess. Like, on the one hand, what this vote, if it sticks, would seem to say is that whatever the deal that gets negotiated mm -hmm. is comes back, take it or leave it, to Parliament, and because presumably crashing out of the European Union on no terms at all would be worse than whatever it is, like there, there is no choice at all. Secondly, it took place in the context of, you know, during the referendum campaign, a lot of those who were in favour of leaving took it as absolutely outrageous that you would suggest that leaving the EU meant you would be leaving automatically the single market and that you would have a hard Brexit, so-called. Since that time, the Prime Minister has basically said in a big uh, you know, speech for the very purpose of saying it, uh, something like hard Brexit is actually the government's intention now, that, that uh, controls on immigration are such a high priority that um, leaving the single market and or a variety of economic costs are, are, are a price worth paying, which is you know, considerable advance on the detail of what was actually discussed and decided in the referendum. So it seems like there's going to be a take-it-or-leave-it vote on terms that are quite different from what many uh, Leave voters would have originally voted on, which is you know, notable and worth noting. Well, I'm not even sure they knew what they were voting on in terms of terms. It just simply was you either stay in or you leave. It was always very vague what that means. But they had been reassured many times that it didn't necessarily mean what apparently it now necessarily means, I guess. Is my point. Or they were given falsehoods, and I mean deliberate falsehoods like the fact that, well, you'll get 350 million quid back to mm. spend on your National Health Service, which is not true. So my complaint, to take this a stage further, to kick this over to you all is, is that where was the responsible position that talked about this in Parliament? This seems to me where it should have been, where the Labor Party should have been, which is, look, we're not going to give you carte blanche with Article 50. We want more specifics in terms of the terms that this involves, to which I know the government would say, you can't tie our hands in negotiating, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but which to the response is, no, but there are certain criteria that have to be adhered to. Now, whether the Lords come up with that for example, the rights of EU citizens to remain would be another point. I don't know. But it's, it's disturbing to say the least because what we have is, is that we have the shadow play of supposedly parliamentary democracy here. And in fact, it is shadow. There's actually really no significant consultation over the quite serious issues that you're talking about having been in the EU for 40 years and then deciding that you want to walk out either and through the front or back door. And to crystallise one kind of uh, aspect of, of what Scott is saying, why exactly did Jeremy Corbyn fold so comprehensively? I mean, what happened? So just a couple of things. I mean, one in terms of um, negotiating 
positions, which was one of the issues that was raised, to say that if we, some, we're, we, we somehow tying the hands of uh, Theresa May and others. Well, actually, it was never thought of enough in the other side, which is actually if you have a vote in your parliament saying this is a really important issue, it doesn't necessarily bind your hands. It can actually strengthen your position to say that this is something which is so important that it needs to be part of the deal. Um, so that wasn't really thought through, I think, uh, enough. Secondly, in terms of uh, Jeremy Corbyn, I mean, this is someone who has been um, a critic of the EU uh, all of his political life. He's not someone in favour of it. Um, he probably imagined that he hadn't been leader of the Labour Party but had been in his old backbench position. He would have almost certainly belonged to the kind of Lexit brigade, i.e. the left exit brigade, thinking that somehow extrication from the European Union would allow the emergence of some kind of socialist utopia um, uh, in this country. So, you know, he has no real love for the European Union as the, the hard left of the Labour Party. Uh, they've never had much love for the EU. So I'm not surprised in that sense that um, he was kind of willing uh, to go along with it. I think also Corbyn is just concerned and worried about that electoral arithmetic. He looks at places like um, Stoke. Uh, there's a by-election in Stoke taking place in a few weeks' time. And... Um, the Labour Party might be beaten by UKIP there. And Labour are concerned about seats where traditional working class seats in this country, that they may be um, defeated by, uh, by UKIP and others. So there's both a kind of ideological motivation on the part of Jeremy Corbyn, but also um, a political calculation in terms of seats. Mm. But I would have understood that if Corbyn had come out and said, we are going to support invoking Article 50. Here are the reasons why. Uh, you know, and I can under, you know, if he says we think that the voters have spoken, so be it. Fine, all the calculations behind it. What I don't understand was this fidgeting and indecision and um, where it gives the appearance of passivity rather than actually taking a clear line. Complicity, I would say, as well as kind of, no? I, I know, but when would you ever think that Jeremy Corbyn, no, given mean, his background, would be complicit with the Conservatives? <clears throat> so that's that is why I'm puzzled because. Yeah. But but, this is, but I, I guess what you're getting at, Christelle, is like that this is not just like him giving it a shrug and saying what happens happens, yeah. but he actually so is quite pleased that this is happening because mm. yeah, it suits his because uh, it suits his his agenda. Broader ideological, yeah. I mean, the only silver lining for me, and it's just probably beyond the scope of this discussion, although hopefully it'll come up in one in the future is that it really opens up a realignment of British politics in one sense. It'll be interesting to see, with this Stoke by-election, uh, whether the Liberal Democrats have a resurgence at the national level, which begins to match what they're doing at local level, because they now are the one firm anti-Brexit party, uh, yeah. at least in England. I will, I will admit that like, when, when one's hope for the future is pinned on the electoral prospects of the Liberal Democrats, well, I, I do feel like one's reached the last, the last the, despairing failsafe. Yeah. But the Lib Dems are not going to do that well in Stoke. No. I mean, um, oh no, it'll be a, it'll be just a small signal. But we're yeah. talking about beyond Stoke in terms. But in of Remain majority seats elsewhere. It, yeah, exactly. The I mean, the more the more significant uh, flicker of hope yeah. in that sense was um, uh, Twickenham. No, Twickenham. Richmond, sorry, was the yeah. Richmond by-election. I think that, that is where the, uh, <laughs> the stadium is, yeah. I think, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. 
And so I, there's that, and then also there is this prospect of realignment, which is now beginning to open up, because you mentioned the number of labor uh, MPs who defied Corbyn in the end. Mm-hmm. And some of those, well, one notable case is Clive Lewis, who just was shadow business secretary. But in <coughs> fact, Lewis for months has been positioning himself possibly for realignment, talking to the Lib Dems, mm-hmm. talking to the Green Party, Carolyn Lucas, for example. And even it is being breathed the prospect that that Remain group within the Conservative Party, one might call the Ken Clark faction, might be looking at a new type of coalition. Which is like Ken Clark and his office staff, or is that no, more he, one person at this point? No, you're talking about people like Anna Subri, for example, who was very vehement and for, and for Remain during the campaign, uh, who continued to express, I think, a very constructive criticism uh, after the referendum. So there are a group of Conservative MPs. Uh, who I think on their own versus the bulk of the government's power and the Labour's can't move. But if they are aligned with some within Labour, some within Lib Dems, some of the smaller factions as well, such as the Greens, as well as not to forget the SNP's position on this, then we get a possibly interesting realignment. That's interesting. I didn't, I mean, we had heard that a little bit more in the immediate post-Brexit environment, but, but I thought that kind of thinking had died down in the last kind of four or five months, is that still a realistic thing? Well, I think in this sense, is to give you one scenario again, and we may be beyond this item, but consider if there's a leadership challenge to Corbyn, for example, which comes up before the next general election, and it happens to come from Clive Lewis, then you have this challenge, which is both within Labor, but then possible links that go beyond Labor as Lewis makes that challenge. Um, in effect, people in other parties who support what he, what he stands for. The only thing I would say there is I think given the fact that we've had two leadership elections in the Labour Party uh, quite recently, the likelihood of another election is, it's certainly not zero, but it's not that high at the moment. Labour would have to do catastrophically bad in forthcoming by-elections, in the May local elections, for that idea to be triggered. And then, of course, it being the Labour Party, it's quite a long process anyway. Um, and the public's appetite for this spectacle gets yeah. less and less. It wasn't high to begin with, and it's getting less with every iteration. Yeah. I mean, if you're asking, will Brexit happen? I think the reason why Brexit might not happen may lie more outside the United Kingdom with all sorts of elections that will go on in Europe <laughs> than will be due to changes within the UK. We're going to have to draw this to a close in a moment, but I'm going to take... I couldn't let this item finish without taking one more swing, I think, at, at this Labour Party um, situation, let, let's put it like that. I mean, one part of... OK, Labour's in a tight spot, granted. MPs divided on the issue, their voters divided on the issue, but you know, it seems to me like yet another instance of a bad hand badly played. I mean, first of all... As a matter of parliamentary process, uh, you know, it doesn't seem that outlandish to me to imagine a world in which the Labour Party basically said, you know, a referendum was made to do this thing in principle, we approve doing this thing in principle, but we cannot give you a blank check on just doing it without ever coming back and presenting the details and having us yeah. entitled to pick those details apart. And if you know, need be, send you back with a flea in your ear to Brussels. And even from the national interest point of view, maybe that's good. When U.S. presidents negotiate treaties, they get to say, guess what, Congress is in the background. So, you know, much as I'd like to sign this off, 
you know, I'm going to have to go back and sell it, so you know, you better give me concessions. Would it be so bad for the the British government to have that going on? So if you're the Labour Party, I don't think you would be like, hung for treason um, by the public from a lamppost for arguing that position. Like secondly, just on the level of messaging, you know, Jeremy Corbyn had this tweet immediately afterwards that was roundly kicked up and down the streets of Twitter that said the real fight begins now uh, for, for like leaving on terms that um, that will uh, uh, you know protect working standards and yada yada yada. Which you know, I think everyone everyone that you talk to you know. Books have now begun to come out about this. Who was involved in the Remain campaign during the referendum tells you that essentially this Labour leader, because he did not particularly want to stay in the EU himself, you know, took a dive on that campaign. You know, he went through the motions, turned up and read a few notes from crumpled paper occasionally, but he did not campaign in a serious, full-throated way. So the particular use of that phrase just seems to signify, I think, to most people, that the real fight that they imagine uh, to have already taken place about whether or not this is a good mm -hmm. idea, any of it, from the referendum through to the Article 50 vote, is not one in which this guy was actually fighting. And now that actually, now that it's all done, he's going to start fighting for, for his own priorities. Which, you know, um, by all means, like, have a strategic decision that you think leaving the EU is a good idea and then pursue that agenda uh, openly and fully. But don't um, pee on Remainer's legs and tell them it's raining, as it were. Don't tell them that no one fought harder than you to stay in, but now, you know, with a heavy heart, you will have to deal with the post-Brexit environment as, as best you can, because you know, that, that is just not convincing anybody. Uh, and I think uh, Surely, the ever-diminishing circle of Jeremy Corbyn himself must must start to realise that the, the mood of the country is darkening when it comes to the fact that someone whose sole selling point is supposedly unblinking sincerity uh, with the with, with the public uh, that he now seems to be hoist on this like ostentatiously hypocritical and deceptive petard. Tim, will you stay with us uh, uh, for the next item? This has been fun. Yes, I'd be, I'd be more than happy to uh, chat with you about Trump. Awesome. Stick around. It's time to go to Number of the Week, where we take a digit link to a news story and uh, hang it out there for all to see. Uh, Scott, what have you got for us this week? Well, this week I have the number five, which is the number of Canadians in separate incidents who have been held, interrogated, and then turned back from the U.S. border. Now, I stress Canadian citizens who have a right to enter the U.S., who are not covered by any executive order, which might bar them. But, of course, all these Canadians have one thing in common, which is they are of Moroccan descent. Included amongst these Canadians was a very promising 19-year-old athlete who was separated from the rest of the Canadian team uh, as they tried to enter the U.S. for a competition, and uh, the mother who was taking her five-year-old child as a treat into the U.S. because said child has been undergoing chemotherapy for cancer. I mention that number because uh, behind it there is the real human impact, not only of the Muslim ban, which we have heard so much about, but about the crackdown on immigration and dangerous folks that has been spurred by this Trump administration. My number of the week is two slash zero 
Two is the number of Grammy Awards that Beyonce won uh, this week at uh, at the Grammys, strangely enough. And zero... Best place to try. Yeah, 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 yeah. If you want, if you want to go for a Grammy, go there. Uh, zero is the amount of times, the number of times that she has won Album of the Year. Now, Beyonce's album Lemonade is a phenomenal piece of art pop art and as a social statement right this deserved album of the year this did not win album of the year i am tremendously pissed off as are many other people but as a reflection on entrenched racial politics in the u.s i think this number zero i'm just gonna leave it hanging there no no but he asked who did win album of the adele, year my Tala. friends adele won album of the year who a friend uh, sent me a sent me a link that, that said that as a consequence of this fact adele has become the donald trump of uh of music awards which we then set off on a lengthy series of riffs to work out how that analogy might uh, might in, stack up in what way has adele become the uh you got yeah. I think I feel for Adele. I mean, even Adele said I did not deserve this award. Hmm. She she, I think she should have given the award to Beyonce actually instead of it accidentally breaking in half in her hands and giving half the award to Beyonce. Well, it's, it's a shame Kanye West was already boycotting the Grammys, or he could, with more popular support on this occasion, probably have actually leapt to the stage and uh, grabbed the award from her and handed it over. Well, with possibly with more cooperation than Taylor Swift offered. Uh, the last time he tried it. <laughs> well deserved, Beyonce. Album of the year, Lemonade. Okay, my uh, my number of the week is going to be sixty, uh, which ordinarily would be the threshold of votes that you require in the Senate in order to confirm a Supreme Court justice, which is to say, to defeat the the filibuster. Uh, after a year of totally stonewalling, uh, the nominee uh, Merrick Garland, put forward by President Obama during his final term, the Senate, uh, with its new Republican majority, now has a new justice nominated for it by the Republican President Donald Trump. That. Uh, uh, nominee is Neil Gorsuch, um, who is by all accounts uh, a fine uh, legal scholar, albeit robustly conservative. But nevertheless, the fact that uh, basically this space has been stolen is a source of great grievance to many Democrats in Congress and indeed in, in the country. It is the case uh, that Democrats could potentially obstruct this nomination by refusing to provide any of the 46 slash 48, depending on whether you count the independents' votes they, they control in uh, in the Senate to support it. But uh, the filibuster exists as a norm, not as a strict rule. It seems blatantly clear that it's going to be tossed aside as a condition uh, by the Republican Party as soon as it's actually invoked, and has therefore been characterized by at least one journalist as being like a, a pair of handcuffs in which the person who's uh, wearing them is holding, holding the key. I think the time uh, has probably come to admit that if you want a Supreme Court justice confirmed, you need 51 votes in the Senate. If you don't have those votes, they will not be confirmed. If you do have those votes, the idea that the filibuster means anything is ridiculous. Let's just uh, toss the precedent uh, out the window and the Democrats should uh, mount their protest uh, as visibly and as vocally as they can do on principle in the process. There's no point holding on to this charade any longer. Resist. <laughs> Donald Trump is, as we all know, God help us all, president. Uh, we also have some idea what kind of man he is by now. Aggressive, talkative, 
not usually oversupplied with policy knowledge. All of these qualities he has brought to bear, uh, apparently, over the course of one of the routine tasks of a new presidency, which is a round of introductory phone calls to various heads of government overseas. A slew of leaks regarding the content of these calls from officials inside this unusually leaky White House has conveyed the impression of a clueless, rambling president alternating between tangential boasts and belligerent clashes. He reportedly hung up on the Prime Minister of Australia after being surprised and upset to learn of a deal on refugees done by his predecessor, implied to the President of Mexico that he might send US forces across the border to deal with bad hombres, he had to put the president of Russia on hold while he asked an aide to explain a nuclear arms control treaty to him before then deciding on the fly that he was against extending it. After a call with the president of France, an anonymous official told Politico in um, a delightfully understated quote that I think deserves to be engraved on the minds of anyone trying to understand this presidency, quote, it was a difficult conversation because he talks like he's speaking publicly. It's not the usual way heads of state speak to each other. He speaks with slogans, and the conversation was not completely organized. <laughs> there have been multiple leaks in parallel portraying the president as generally overwhelmed and confused by the responsibilities of office, refusing to engage with briefing material, and preferring to continue his two primary habits of watching hours of cable TV and tweeting impulsively. So I, I say again, uh, God help us all, um, is this what U.S. diplomacy is going to be like for four years? If so, what does that mean for the world? So, Cristala, yes. you are, as I occasionally remind our listenership, Australian, as true. I believe you uh, say down there. Antipodean, also yes. known as, yes. Yeah, that, that includes the, the New Zealanders as well, doesn't it? I think it's, it's true, but I think, you know, we can be... the Antipodes too, you can't have it all. We can be amalgamated into one kind of southern lot. Don't tell them that. Um, <laughs> so your uh, your guy, Malcolm Turnbull, yes. Prime Minister, he was the canary down the mine, uh, if you will, of this that let us know that the noxious gas of all of these phone calls was steadily spreading across the diplomatic ecosystem. It is um, true. What, uh, uh, what uh, has the reaction to that broadly been in the... Uh, in the world of Australians paying more than the average world citizen's attention to all Malcolm Turnbull's you uh, know, phone correspondence? Australians are, are, a, are a practical bunch of people and, and the value that they drew out of this was mostly hilarity. Um, and they uh, maximised this for its comedic value. And so poor Malcolm didn't just get hung up on, but he also got made fun of in um, various media outlets mm -hmm. in Australia. Uh, so it was generally used to, one, beat Malcolm Turnbull over the head, which he thoroughly deserves, um, about his um, lack of gravity as a, as a head of state um, who can't even finish a phone call with the, mm. with the US president. Well, Donald Trump told him that it was uh, that he had lots of phone calls today and this was the worst yes. phone call <laughs> that he'd had. <laughs> Which I think one can imagine it in the voice pretty easily, I think. There are a whole bunch of spin-offs, actually, that were, that were pretty funny about what could have been said in that conversation. Probably none funnier than what actually happened in that conversation. But, yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't portend well. Um, Perhaps um, presidential conversations or head of state conversations with, with President Trump may decrease, um, but the Australians at least have been making um, 
hay of the situation, let's put it like that. Mm. I mean, d the one way, like if I was, if I was a, a spin doctor for the Australian Liberal Party, the illiberal Liberal Party, <laughs> yeah. as I like to call them here, and like I was trying to think, how do you make lemons, uh, lemonade out of, the, out of these lemons? Well, you might say as well, the reason why Donald Trump was annoyed was because Malcolm Turnbull said to him, hey guy, like we have this deal for you taking these refugees and you keep saying all these things in public about how you hate and want to in refugees, we're still good for that deal, right? And like persisted with it. Nevertheless, he persisted. Yes. And this, uh, this was what upset Donald Trump, who then in turn annoyed him, so, uh, got annoyed and hung up. So if you, were, like, if you were in the tank for Malcolm Turnbull's public image, you Could could argue the case side? that this was his, uh, like his bold stance in support mm. of the national interest at the cost of the comedy of the conversation. See, uh, see the thing that, you're, um, the thing that you uh, aren't taking into account is the extent to which conversations or the, the national kind of rhetoric about refugees in Australia has reached the point where this too is a failure for Malcolm Turnbull. And I mean that from the right side of the debate, um, capital R, right? Mm. In that um, not only is he doing badly in the polls generally and not getting the best deal and getting hung up, hung up on, but now also the US won't take our 1,200 refugees who the, that Malcolm Turnbull made such a great show of, of shunting over to the Americans. So the, so the debate is such in Australia that, that it can't be portrayed, I don't think it can be realistically portrayed as a victory um, or an effort to be, you know, to, to, to be holding the US's feet to the fire as such and so then nobly getting hung up on. Um, mm. But another failure, it, that, that's the way that it's kind of portrayed, that he couldn't even get that. And that, that, that rhetoric kind of started up in Australia way before tr like that phone call actually happened. Uh, that it, with an incoming Trump um, executive, it was unlikely that the US would take Australia's unwanted. Right, so like, like in lots of the world, Donald Trump is bad because he's so xenophobic yeah. and illiberal and opposed to refugees. In Australia, he's bad because this means that the bunch of refugees you want to ship out yeah. uh, because they're so terrible and unwelcome yes. can't, can't be shipped out. Do not forget that Australians are also saying, like Australian Liberal Party politicians are also saying, we've got the, gr we've, you want policies on refugees? We've got policies on refugees. Mm -hmm. um, we can share our policies on refugees. So yeah, if you, if you talk about kind of global narratives of fear and securitization of, of, of um, migration flows, the Australians are far out there. Right, maybe, maybe they want to get back on terms. They can give Donald Trump Nauru's <laughs> phone number uh, to like help, help uh, do, do a link up there. That's the, the place for, for the uninitiated listener uh, to which Australia has an exchange for coin, been shipping off refugees for internment uh, for, for many years. Scott, you seem to be uh, increasing in your physical agitation with every passing moment as you contemplate this president and his phone manner. What a train wreck. I mean, and it's like you and I get to watch it each and every day and immerse ourselves in terms of what has been derailed. Let's make a couple points to kick it out for discussion. The first is Donald Trump has very little to do with the actual details of American foreign policy now. And by that I mean it's always a sadistic pleasure to get into what has happened with these calls or with his latest statement um, or his latest, you know, macho handshake, you know, 
grabbing of the Japanese prime minister in the latest episode. But what that conceals in a bit is that Trump is just almost a figurehead when he comes up with these wild-ass statements. And that takes us to the second point, which is, all right, well, who then is making foreign policy? And that's when the story gets worse, yeah. believe it or not, which is this is probably the most dysfunctional U.S. government since Richard Nixon was off his head mm-hmm. and, and crying in front of P- Lincoln's picture and Henry Kissinger was trying to pick him up. Right, so like when Richard Nixon was six years in, yeah. drunk, and about to get impeached, like that's what these people have begun at like day one, this and, is the level of institutional and capacity and temperamental balance that they're at. Yeah, and beyond, because what's happened now is, is that rather than drinking drugs, what we've got is one faction, which is just basically crazed power, because it's a group of, uh, of jumped-up kids who've been given the keys to the White House. And by that, I mean the fire breathers. This is the chief strategist, Steve Bannon. This is the 31-year-old policy director, Stephen Miller, and their acolytes that they brought in. So you got them on one side, and then you got the pragmatist on the other, which might mean the defense secretary, James Mattis, distinguished general. In a sense, most of the State Department staff, and I think the Secretary of State himself, Rex Tillerson, had been. So now there's this all-out battle brewing because the fire breathers want to go in, and Bannon seriously does want to show down with China. So let's not make any mistake about that. They want to see Europe trashed, which is why you've got this crazed ambassador to the EU, Theodore Roosevelt Malik, who's coming over saying, I get to be ambassador to the EU while you all basically dissolve as an effective organization. They want to cozy up to Russia, and we can take that where it goes. So you've got all this going on, and then you've got the pragmatists just trying to keep them on a leash. So -hmm. what does it mean in practice? Let me just give you two examples, which Trump has almost nothing to do with. The first is is that the grown-ups, the pragmatists, have been able, through the defense secretary going out to Asia, to get some type of sense in terms of policy out there, which is reassure Japan, reassure South Korea. Uh, Oh, and by the way, don't go in and threaten the Chinese. Then secondly, on the other hand, you've got uh, Bannon and Miller running around, uh, in a sense, deciding how far they want to go and cozying up to Moscow, while the National Security Advisor, a guy named Michael Flynn, is about to be hung up, quite rightly, because he said before Trump ever came into office, we're going to lift the sanctions, Mm -hmm. and told the Russian ambassador to this in a series of phone conversations. Now... We're at the point, final point, because I could go on and on with how dysfunctional it is. At one point, the committee that makes foreign policy, the Principals Committee of the National Security Council, which usually is chaired by the Secretary of State, the Defense Secretary, the Treasury Secretary, one meeting was chaired by this 31-year-old guy, Stephen Miller, who basically has simply gone out with alt-right speech and shouted from the rooftops and done nothing else of value. And now he's the guy that gets to run the meeting. That's how far down the road of dysfunction we've gone with this administration in three weeks. I mean, it, it's, it's such an unusual situation in some ways because like, ordinarily one thinks of the United States as the country in the world above all others that basically does the managing, right? That it's its job. Like you have, you know, peop- various countries in the world may have like demands that are unreasonable or leaders that are, you know, unstable or erratic or whatever and it's the job of the United States to go okay given that we're basically like have uh, deep reserves of institutional capacity and knowledge and relatively stable interests and preferences uh, and our level head like how do we manage 
all of these other players of varying levels of ability and calm like into behaving appropriately and normally. Whereas now, in the space of three weeks, it seems like the script has flipped. We now have a president of the United States who is like the, the very textbook definition of someone who needs to be managed, like the rest of the world, whether you're Japan or China or France, everybody is basically getting, these, getting on these phone calls where they're like, you know, it's not just that you're going on the phone with someone who you know, has conservative views and you need to negotiate with those conservative views. It's that you get someone who tells you six intersecting rambling stories about the size of their rallies and the outrageousness of how they're being treated by the media and then maybe at some point dips into a 180 degree reversal of some long-standing policy towards you and then gets out of it again before you have a chance to pick the ball up. And that um, is such a reversal of the United States' <coughs> normal role. It'll be really interesting to see how all of the countries in the world who can normally, to some degree, perform like impulsiveness and demanding behavior on the assumption the United States will attempt to placate them, deal with the fact that suddenly the United States is the thing that seems like it needs desperately and with some degree of trepidation to be, to be placated. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, I mean, the, the, the problem is here that exactly it's not now the United States that we look to to uphold the norms, the practices, the procedures of international politics. The real worry for me is, is, is arguably less relations with other states because China might pull back on something, Russia might pull back because they realize the importance of, of the international system. But um, it's dealing with uh, groups, organizations, regimes that don't play according to those rules. I mean, I'm more worried about North Korea or worried about a response to uh, an ISIS operation somewhere. These are not people who are going to get on the phone and say, well, we'll manage Donald. Um, no, they'll go out of their way to like use yeah. his volatility. So that, that's more, the, to be honest with you, that's what I'm more worried about than necessarily. Uh, I mean, it's interesting, you know, someone like Xi Jinping, for example, seems to now be a voice of moderation and reasonableness. I mean, that's kind of crazy to say so, but mm -hmm. it feels like that at the moment. Um, Putin is just remaining very quiet because everyone's doing his business without him needing to say much mm -hmm. at the moment. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm going to be fascinated to see how the Putin thing works out because everybody, you know, everybody always seems to be so actively keen to hand Vladimir Putin the award of like 11 dimensional chess grandmaster for his supposed manipulation of everything and successful achievement of all of his ends in all times and places. But like what he has basically done here, it seems to me, is um, use the resources of the Russian state to attempt uh, to destabilize and undermine who he expected to be the president of the United States, Hillary Clinton, uh, by promoting this you know, narcissistic, uh, oafish buffoon uh, into unprecedented degrees of political success. Uh, those degrees of success were greater than anyone could have predicted. He's won. And although he is in some sense a tool of Russia because he seems to be, you know, one of his more consistent points is a constant refusal to criticize uh, Putin, to, to be bizarrely uh, complacent when it comes to Russian interests. He is still, you know, Donald Trump. He is someone whose vanity, if ruffled, leads him to do um, like and say outrageous confrontational things uh, of a kind that international diplomacy can be can be very dangerous and 
one false move in Eastern Europe or elsewhere that somehow makes it seem like it's in the vital defense of Donald Trump's ego and sense of self uh, to do something. And he could go from being a useful idiot to being like the most dangerously overreaction-prone kind of president that one can imagine. So like, I wonder sometimes like, if Vladimir Putin, for all the self-satisfaction he no doubt feels, like, isn't a little overconfident that, that he has total command of this situation that he's created. I well, don't think so. I, don't, I, I think Putin's in good place here, uh, at least as a tactician. We can debate him as a strategist, but that's for two reasons. One is all the Russians have to do is say just enough to keep Trump happy in terms of his ego. Crimea is now gone. They will mess around in the eastern part of Ukraine to destabilize that country. They could put pressure on the Baltic states. I mean, let's just put these down as markers. Now, let's go farther. Far from backing away, what the Russians now have, because they're trying to exploit instability, and I'll kick this over to Tim, they're trying to get Marine Le Pen elected in France, or at least damage the French process so more that it sinks so into chaos during these elections. You know, let's be point blank about it. They're using WikiLeaks to basically trash Macron, the centrist alternative. Uh, they had been going after Fillon, the right alternative, they want Le Pen in. And they will try to take An Angela Merkel down as well if there's an opening in Germany. That's how far that campaign is there. So far from backing away, Adam, I think, you know, they've had one big success with the U.S. They might as well try to build on it. I mean, I would say that Vladimir Putin is not a, or Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin is not a grandmaster of, the, of uh, 11th level chess. But I would just suggest, firstly, that uh, he's been playing a load of school kids um, when it comes to chess. He's, he can be outsmarted. The second thing that is worth bearing in mind is these sorts of tactics um, uh, are similar to tactics that have been used for many years in the past, especially during Cold War era. Um, I sometimes wonder what our security services are doing or should be doing mm -hmm. um, during uh, these kind of um, battles. Um, so that would be the second thing that I would say. Um, and thirdly, everyone seems to talk as if Russia is a huge, powerful country. I mean, look at the state of the Russian economy. The R Russia is not as powerful a country economically as it once was. Um, you only have to look at oil and oil prices and how dependent still Russia is on, on oil. Um, so we, we ha also have to get out of the mindset that Russia is big and powerful and, we ha and, and, and treat Russia as a mid-range um, Eurasian power that can be dealt with. I mean, I would, I would still like to see the look on Vladimir Putin's face, right? Like, I'm imagining him, like, he's in the Oval Office, no, whatever, what do they call it in, in, in the Kremlin? He's in the office of whatever shape uh, the, the, the leader of Russia has, and he's on the phone, and, like, this guy, this reality TV star, uh, who he has broadly favored, uh, is now on the phone to him for the first call. And, you know, he's working his way through the bullet point. Presumably he said, oh, congratulations on your victory. I saw you on TV the other day. You looked amazing, or whatever you say to begin a, a good conversation with Donald Trump. And then he's working down his bullet points, and he gets to, oh, so this deal that we did, like, to limit our nuclear weapons uh, a while ago, um, 
is coming up for renewal. And given that we're like poor and our nuclear weapons are, you know, uh, not things we would like to have to expensively increase the number of, uh, how about we continue like that deal? And Donald Trump goes, oh, uh, can I just put you on hold for a moment? <laughs> and then goes off and literally asks whoever happens to be in the room, what treaty is he talking about? What does it mean? And then comes back on and goes, oh, it's a terrible deal, this, this deal. We're going we're gonna, to like junk it and drop it. And suddenly, you know, this is not totally out of character because he said other things during the campaign about how the United States, or during as president-elect, about how the United States needs to drastically increase its nuclear arsenal, uh, you know, have a huge military build-up. It, it would that that would be the sort of thing that would make me think I am dealing with an ignorant idiot, but like an ignorant idiot of a kind who is not. 100% assured to be manipulable by me in the ways that I would want to manipulate him. Like he is, a, he, like he is working day to day a lot closer with a bunch of uh, like wild-eyed yeah. militant American like national security type people who I can readily imagine would favor things like missile defense and massive escalations in American military capacity of a kind that. Russia wouldn't care to fund or, or, or match or deal with in, in theater. So this could all go very wrong. And I'd love to see what Putin's body language is like when he's on that phone call realizing, okay, maybe this isn't the walk in the park that I was hoping it would be. Yeah, but I, th I, think they realize, I think they realize, again, like we talked about, that Trump is just an unpredictable annoyance. I mean, let's just take the, the fact that they had Michael Flynn over to Moscow you know, wined and dined him at this great ceremony for RT, the state broadcaster, had him sitting next to Putin in 2015. Mm -hmm. Not in the idea they necessarily would plant him in the American administration, but it just made a good tactical move to have him there. Uh, let's just talk about the fact that their vast pouring of state propaganda, influence campaign, wasn't just simply, oh, Trump could get elected. It was to just undermine alternatives. It was to go after Hillary Clinton, to break up the Democratic Party, to break up the American media as being a responsible check on authority, to be disruptive precisely because they are economically weak. I mean, what Russia really, I think, probably bristles at is the continued U.S. and European sanctions, for example, over Ukraine, uh, the almost chokehold that could be exercised in their economy. And the more that they can disrupt the U.S. and Europe, then the, the more they begin to liberate themselves. But let me just, I've got a question I want to ask everybody while we're here, because while this, all this playground stuff's going on, somebody bought 19% of Rosneft, Russia's big oil company. Who? Who bought it and why? That's the type of question I'd like the answers to while all this superficial stuff's going on with Trump, you know, going, I don't know what's going on here. Uh, let's just end this nuclear deal. I'll leave that hanging. I think we set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Paul Worldview, and please do. Please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes and leave us a rating or comment, which, which helps others discover the pod. Uh, you can also come and like our show page, facebook.com forward slash Paul Worldview, where you can get links to the podcast, to articles, uh, uh, links to, to media appearances and blog posts and all sorts of things like that. Uh, and share us on social media. If you've listened to this, if you thought, hey, those people sound like they know what they're talking about and deserve a, a wider audience, then why not put us up uh, on Twitter or Facebook or the, or the platform of your choice with a recommendation. It's uh, much appreciated if you would. Our participants today have been uh, honored guests first, uh, Tim Horton. Um, where can people find you on social media if they're so inclined, Tim? 
Uh, so I very occasionally tweet at at Horton Tim. Mm-hmm. About matters political or uh, uh, just in general? About matters political most of the time with the occasional reference to football. Okay, that sounds like a fairly standard uh, British politics department uh, one-two combo. Scott, where can people find you? Scott Lucas underscore EA on Twitter or at the website EA Worldview, www.eaworldview.com, covering all sorts of mischief in the U.S. and around the world. Christelle, it's been a while since you've had yes. the opportunity to remind people about your social media credentials. Where, where can you be tracked down relentlessly by stalkers? People can find me at at Yukinthu, that is Y-A-K-I-N-T-H-O-U, with those unfamiliar, where I uh, talk about various things related to justice and sometimes house moves as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, a heady brew. Mm-hmm. I'm Adam Quinn. That's Adam Quinn 161 on Facebook. Uh, uh, also, the guy opposed in black and white with Lyndon Johnson. Uh, if you're if you're checking by photograph, I'm also on Twitter, although I use that less often. At Adam James Quinn. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the political science department of the University of Birmingham in England. We'll be back soon. We hope you will be too. Bye. 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 Bye.